The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members for using your credit cards. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. My name's Andrew. How's everybody doing out there? We hope you guys are doing good. So glad you guys are coming out every single week to listen to the show. How's it going, guys? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Staying busy, bro? Very busy, I bet. Yes. <laughs> okay, we've got a Patreon question today. Uh, last week was the first day of fall, even though it doesn't feel like it in Texas. We got like two days of like, you know, a little bit of it. We only have two seasons. We don't have, anyway. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> but question of the day, candy corn or candy canes? Candy canes. Do you like candy corn at all? No. Niels, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not going to go with the candy canes. My wife's a big Christmas head, and uh, so Christmas starts probably in about June in our house. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go candy canes. As it should. Yeah, Can, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, not a candy <laughs> yes, corn guy. When I was a kid, I thought candy corn was great, and as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized it's it's garbage. It's not it's not great at all. <laughs> looks cool sitting on a. It looks pretty in, a, in the jar in a bowl or yeah. something. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for the Patreon question. If you want to ask your question, join us at Patreon.com/slash Team Never Quit. You can get access to exclusive content, some really cool swag even some ad-free episodes. Make sure you guys check that out. We've got a great guest in store today. Niels Jorgensen is a former New York City firefighter of 21 years, a 9-11 survivor, as well as the host of the 20 for 20 podcast, a show highlighting 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary of the tragedy. Welcome to the show, Niels. Well, thank you, sir. And thank you, Marcus, for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Appreciate it. Oh, so obviously everybody's it's not going to be hard to pick up pick up a man's accent from, from one of arguably the most patriotic cities. That's what I love about people from Jersey and New York. It's, they just, it's like, th- it's a thing across the country. It's like, you know, when I talk, you know I'm from Texas. Yep. You know, when people from New York talk, you know, they're from New York or Jersey or Atlanta. You know, unfortunately, some states, they don't have the luxury of having their own dialect or their own accents. That's true. I don't ever feel like I sound Texan, but... Pretty sure it's there somewhere. But you got to appreciate the humor because Niels lives in Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, I'm I'm now a damn Yankee, and uh, yeah, my wife's teasing me because I've been I've been toning down my New Yorkness so I could fit in a little here out in the hills. But uh, it's funny when I flash back 35 years ago to Army basic training, I was down Alabama, and uh, there was five of us from New York City and uh, 195 guys from across the rest of the country. And 
they used to make the New York guys sit down and they would give us like 25 cents a word. They'd like say, say coffee, coffee, say ball, ball. <laughs> you know, we would really pour it on just, and they would just crack up laughing. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, accents are very, very interesting. Uh, I grew up with an Irish mother who's off the boat. She still has her, her Irish brogue at 70, 74 years old. So I'm, I'm a big fan of accents. But I uh, appreciate it, guys. Oh, yeah. No, that's the best part about New York. They're proud of their accents. Because New York, because, and there's a difference, yeah, between, yeah, there's a difference between New York definitely. and New Jersey, too. I mean, I don't know if people know that. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Northern New Jersey, southern New Jersey, even differences. It's, it's funny. 25, 50 miles changes the dialect a little bit. It's very interesting, actually. And now... I can only imagine when people in that town you live in Tennessee is the one eat when you start talking, they just gotta look up from what they're doing. <laughs> well, that's I'm still learning to to say y'all and not you guys, but uh yeah, there's some good folks here. And uh that's part of the reason I moved here for a quiet country life. Um you know, when you're when you have uh, I guess a bunch of significant emotional events, right? Not to sound weak, whatever, but after a while you just get saturated and sometimes being in a quiet place is is best for the, the mind and the soul. So I, I found a beautiful little spot here. It reminds me of where my mom's from in Ireland. And uh, I spent my childhood uh, every summer when I was a little boy at my grandma's farm in Ireland. And I feel like I've come back full circle now at 53 and uh, I'm living out that farm dream that I always had. So I'm blessed by God to get that chance and uh, really enjoying every minute of it. Um, I miss, I miss the good of New York and the great people of New York that I love up there. But uh, it's not the city I was born in, unfortunately. Uh, you know, politics aside, it's just being mismanaged. And uh, it's sad. It's sad. I was actually, uh, I was attacked. Uh, I work as a stagehand now in the TV and filming union since I retired from the fire department. And I was coming off the subway about uh, two years ago, just before all this stuff kicked off with the virus. And I probably wear an American flag hat that I'm wearing right now. Uh, you know, being a veteran and just loving, loving this country as a first generation American and four young men attacked me, um, somewhat race based and they just didn't like my hat and they were cussing me out and letting me know. And, uh, you know, one guy was just jumping up and down in front of me, throwing, throwing punches toward my nose, but not landing them. And another guy was filming it and this went on for a few minutes and it just kept getting more and more agitated. And, you know, being a former cop, I spent my first two years as a New York City police officer and then 21 and 21 and a half in fire. But uh, I figured a cop car come by in a minute and they must have been out in a call. So things just kept getting more heated, more heated. So I finally got up in this young man's face and I started screaming at him. And I said, all right, let's go. You're right. I'm this and blap, blap. And whatever he kept saying I was, I said, you're right. And I just work 18 hours and I need to go home and sleep for two so I can go back for 18 more but whatever it is I did to mess up your life and piss you off, let's get it done. And his friend realized I must've been crazy or a cop or something. And he grabbed him and said, Oh, we just filmed people to get them to, you know, to get them to beg us for mercy and make us look good so we can have bones and street cred. And I just shook my head, walked away. And I was like, I prayed for these young guys. Cause this is man, they're 19 and they're lost and they're going nowhere. And I got in the car and uh, I was, you know, too, I guess at that point, two in the morning, whatever. And my wife could hear my voice, the, the stress and the panic. And I, she goes, you okay? I said, yeah, I was almost not. And, and I said, uh, we were just down in Nashville. And 
you know, Central Tennessee doing the tourist thing. I said, you like it there? And she said, oh, I love it. I said, good, get used to it. We're going. And I uh, came down here, bought some land. I'm trying to build a house. And I, I, I hate retreating. I hate ever running away. But I realized that it was time late in life now to regroup and come come somewhere a little quieter and uh, and and come where there's folks. Not to say there's not great people in New York and New Jersey, but more folks that I can relate to down here. There's less of that division and anger and politics. It's it's God family country down here, which which used to uh, inhabit most of the United States. I know it still exists in Texas uh and, oh, yeah. and tennessee and, and you know a lot of states in the midwest and upper west but but it just seems like some of the some of the uh states where the big cities are there's just this just just i don't know like this twilight zone kind of world where what used to be important and what used to really matter is now just out the window and everything's upside down so uh things make sense for me here and uh i i think i want to spend the rest of my life here to be honest with you marcus it's uh it's a peaceful place real peaceful place it is God's country. <clears throat> yes, sir. We covered kind of high level your your background, but let's give the let's give the listeners a a little, a little deeper dive on where where you came from and just walk us through the, the your career, if you will, and then what you're doing now because what you're doing now is you know it'll it'll touch everybody's heart. Well, I appreciate the kind words, Marcus, and you might have to rope me in because um, I'm, I'm Irish and we like to talk a lot. So <laughs> if, got a lot I, of tape. if I veer way off the target, if, if I veer way off the target, feel free to pull me back in. Uh, I'm, I'm a proud uh, New York born and raised boy. My, my dad uh, is uh, a New York native. His father was from Denmark. His mom, her parents were from Ireland and she was orphaned quite young. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and my dad decided to bring us out to the country at the time, which was Staten Island, and uh, pretty much was raised there. Spent a year of my teenage years in Ireland because my dad was a New York City firefighter, uh, finished up in the Air Force as a crash rescue firefighter, and then went on to New York City for 34 years. He was fighting a uh, terminal cancer at 38 years old, and they uh, they asked him to be a test pilot for a, uh, a new radical cancer drug in 1978. And this man went to work. They, they pulled him off the truck, put him in an office, and um, he, he got four and a half years of chemo, and he went to work every time, you know, he would be on it, actually. He'd go, go to work, come back, get his treatment, be violently ill for a few days. And once he was able to get up and about, he'd go back to work. So after he got his time, his base pension time, my mom thought maybe he wouldn't live. So she decided we should move to Ireland and uh, her safety net was over there. She's from a huge family. And we spent about 10, 11 months and my dad said, nope, this isn't America. I'm sorry. I'm American. My kids are American. We're going back home. And I love Ireland. I love my family there, but it's not America. So when I got back here, my God, I was I was kissing a tarmac at Kennedy Airport and uh, moved on through high school took the police test, the fire test. Uh, I knew I wanted to be like my daddy. Uh, you know, I was in that firehouse at five years old and I'm looking around with these, these giants with mustaches and they're all laughing and joking and they're loving life. And I'm saying, man, I want to be like that. I want to go to work and, and be happy. And, uh, I just, that was my pursuit and, uh, failed out of college, joined the army reserves, uh, then, then switched over to Army National Guard, did eight years, uh, no combat. Initially, 
uh, military police, then cross-trained as combat medic, signed to an armored cab unit. Got on New York City police uh, after two years of, of hard uh, labor at construction. Um, non-union, working like a maniac for six, seven, eight bucks an hour. Got on police department and I loved it. I loved being a cop, but I realized really quickly that people don't love cops. And the guy in the rookie class just before me, he he had a bucket of cement dropped on the back of his head and sheared the back of his skull off. And the cruel irony is he's still alive 34 years later in a rehab institute getting cleaned and fed and washed. And uh, the press, press seems to forget him. They don't uh, talk about guys like that. Did almost two years NYPD, loved it. I was in the middle of the crack wars uh, in the in the hood, but I liked walking the old ladies to the market and and shooting hoops with the young kids, because I would try to make a difference in their lives and let them know that someone really gave a crap about them, and that I was willing to die for them for their safety. But in my heart, I wanted to be a fireman. Uh, Follow my dad. One of the happiest days of my life, swearing in as a as we call it a pro B firefighter, and um, I learned horribly within eleven months. Uh, my best friend from the academy, Kevin Kane, former uh, U.S. Army Airborne Ranger, finished his tour in the army and became a priest and decided priesthood wasn't for him. He's an Irish Catholic guy. And he wanted to follow his daddy and be a fireman. And uh, 11 months into our tour of duty, he was burned to death in a fire. And uh, I went to his his wake and his funeral with our other best friend, Jimmy Young. And Jimmy Young burned to death in 1994. And all of a sudden, I'm saying, man, Things happen in threes. And I'm not embarrassed to say it. It shook me up a bit. It spooked me a bit. 1993, I was in a bad fire truck wreck. Uh, I was thrown. Couldn't move my arms and my legs. I got rushed up to the uh, trauma center Bellevue. And a heavy rescue just laid interference the whole way up over the Brooklyn Bridge, up the FDR Drive, just blown cars out of the way, racing me there. And a uh, Father Michael Judge, our, our beautiful Catholic chaplain, he responded. He called my mom and my dad. And uh, my father-in-law was also a uh, FDMY firefighter and my late, uh, he's passed. And now my late beautiful Irish mother-in-law was just one of my dear friends and my brother-in-law. And um, I said to Father Judge, it was a Sunday. I said, Father, I miss church. I didn't get there today. I was working uh, morning of Sunday into the morning of Monday, 24-hour shift. I said, but I'll try to get to chapel here in the morning. And he smiled. He says, you know what, Nels? He says, um, you try to tell the good Lord what you're doing tomorrow. He's just going to laugh at you. So how about we get through tonight? So he put his hands on my head and we prayed and I cried because I thought I was paralyzed. And uh, they put me in the tube and I came out. And about six hours later, the stock come in and I started feeling tingling in my, my feet and my hands. And he said, look, I can't see what's wrong. He says, there's a bunch of swelling uh, on the end impact but there's no break you're, you're probably going to be fine it's just going to take a day it's a stinger it's it's swollen so sure enough i got out of there four days later and uh went back to duty in a couple couple weeks after that and you know thinking my career was over and man it was another rebirth it just uh it started all over again but five years later i was in a, another uh incident i was in a collapse and i went into another cat scan and the doc says hey the hell are you doing on a job man what are you doing walking around and working out you know whatever i said what do you mean sir he says you've got a full fracture of cervical seven in, in, in your column he said but it's all filled in with arthritis and and, and you know he goes did, did you get a real bad crushing injury i said well i was in a wreck what they told me there was nothing 
And uh, I said, Doc, you have faith? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, well, Father Michael Judge put his hands on me. And he went, okay, yeah, we're good. Go back to work. And uh, so Father Judge was my boy. I went to the first bombing in 1993 uh, after they tried to take it down the first time. I was with this beautiful soul of a man named Hank Miller. He was the senior man in the crew. And much like the military, they, they marry you up to a senior guy to keep under, they keep you under their wing so you don't get hurt. You don't wander off. You don't do too much without knowing too much. And he looked around and it was just the aftermath. And he said, hey, kid, you know, they, they did it wrong. He said, they blew it up here in the middle and, and it held up. He says, but next time they're going to come back and they're going to do it in a corner. And he said, they'll, they'll drop it to Canal Street, which is a half mile up the street. And, um, you know, I left that day thinking, wow, you know, this is kind of deep what he's saying. And in 1994, they had a manual with uh, a target on the World Trade Center that said, not a matter of if, matter of when, be ready. And it was for our high-rise training operations. Well, one of the cruel ironies on the morning of 2001, September 11th, Hank Miller was a senior man again. And the young man under his charge that morning was this beautiful young guy, Dennis O'Berg Jr. And his father, Dennis O'Berg Sr., is uh, one of the men who, aside from my dad, who did a damn good job, one of the men who taught me to be a man and a fireman. And Dennis Sr.'s beautiful young son was killed with Henry Miller. Henry Miller prophesied he knew they were coming back. He just knew it. And 50 yards from them was my childhood best friend, John Sharp. And John and I were, we were buds, man. John was a tough, tough guy with a soft edge. And uh, he was on shift. I was off shift that morning. I was, I was working my moonlight driving an oil truck. And uh, I got home four days, four days after everything was going on. And my wife said, well, we got some good news. So I'm having a baby, which was our third. And I said, oh, my God, that's a gift from God. I said, but John, John's wife's having a, his third baby, too. But he's dead. They'll never see him. And uh, the kids were born three days apart, May of 02. And um, there's a lot of guilt with that. I love my beautiful little Catherine. She's just a gift from God. I call her my 9-11 miracle because if I didn't get home, I never would have seen her. And now she's just this beautiful, intelligent young woman, 19 years old. And my friend's son, John Jr., is, you know, good young man, but never even met his daddy. And uh it's kind of upsetting, but I was blessed that morning. I, I was off duty. I raced in uh, for my side job for my moonlight. And uh, much like the military, you know, you have uh, orders and chains of command that you just can't kind of run into battles because you, no one will know you're, you're there. And, and if you get hurt or lost or captured or whatever, no one's looking for you here. So the city gave a recall order, which means all police, fire, EMS personnel were obligated to go to their command immediately that we were under a terrorist attack. I'd seen the first plane uh, across the harbor, the burning tower, and I said, ah, it's probably a Learjet. It's probably some rich dude who wanted a picture and a pilot got too close and he veered into the building. And, uh, you know, I know it sounds like another day in New York, but, you know, they didn't want us racing in, you know, the on-duty platoon is a couple thousand guys, so they got enough to handle it. But all of a sudden, that second plane hit, and I knew, I knew we were under attack. So it got to my command. I, I called in to higher command, and they said, uh, 114, my truck that morning, with Dennis Oberg Sr. at the command of it, 
they already left on a dispatch. They're gone. They're on the way to Manhattan. We were in Brooklyn, which is probably about eight, nine miles away, uh, still part of the city. And um, they had given out a, a, an equivalent initially of a tent alarm assignment, which meant probably about 100 fire trucks minimal, 150 fire trucks and uh, 500 personnel. So um, anyway, we got in and, uh, and the chief said, OK, when you get 12 guys, uh, have whoever takes over command. Check in on the radio, take a radio, get whatever gear you can, commandeer a city bus and uh, get, to, get to Manhattan. So there was threats of the uh, battery tunnel being blown up on a secondary uh, device. And some young firefighter named Stephen Siller, who had five children, he raced with his pickup to the mouth of the tunnel and he was stopped from going in. And uh, so he took his fire gear, his coat, his helmet, his, you know, everything he had, about 60 pounds of gear. He ran two and a half miles through the tunnel to meet up with his uh, couple. Stephen didn't make it home either. And his brother is the gentleman from the Towers Foundation, which takes care of all of our Gold Star families and first responder families that have lost their loved ones to, to their jobs and to the horribly wounded military combat and first responder horribly injured. They, they all get home thanks to the memory of Stephen and his beautiful brother, Frank. So we proceeded. City bus, uh, this gentleman, John, he, he wouldn't give us the bus. He said he had to stay with it. He was a city bus driver. We didn't want him risking his life, but he was brave. He said, I'm sorry, I have to do it. And as we got to the Brooklyn Bridge, the tower, second tower came down and uh, we were kind of overcome with guilt because now we, we were late for the battle, right? We missed it and our guys got shot up. And uh, that was just some heavy shit because I felt like I failed. My man, my, my buddy, my John, my best buddy, all these guys that that just taught me about life, about being a man, being a good man. And they were all gone. And uh, we got over there and it was just hell. It was it was a scene from war. And, you know, I was only a weekend warrior for eight years and, and I had no combat. Uh, we were just about to go over in the first Iraqi war and we got pulled back. So I never did see that type of uh, arena. But when we got off the bus over the Brooklyn Bridge and it was just this huge pile of it looked like the end of the world, like, a you know, these zombie apocalypse movies that they seem to have on every week now. And then there was fighter jets just screaming overhead. And I'm saying, wow, we, we we're at war. And there was reports that other planes were going to come in and there were secondary devices planted and we were to be on high alert for, for anything that just looked out of the ordinary. And. Uh, there was, there was not enough equipment. Uh, we weren't prepared. The city didn't learn their lesson after 1993. And uh, we didn't have spare fire trucks. We didn't have spare Scott mass tools. It would be like saying, send in a couple thousand extra troops to a battle, but uh, we can't give you a weapon. So we did our best. And uh, that first night, you know, uh, we were all doing search grids, just certain areas, you know, cause we couldn't commit everybody to one specific pile. And I was off to the side with this older fireman from my uh, my father's old truck, 172. And we were about 100, 200 yards away from the, the main focus at the time was the two police officers from the Port Authority Police Force that were still trapped uh, from what I believe they were the last two human beings taken out of there alive. And we went off to the side and he said, hey, brother, what do you hear? And I said, well, I hear like it sounds like sand coming down a dune. Uh, and that was all the just pulverized cement. Just, just, just tapering down every couple of minutes. 
and I heard hissing from the gas lines and the water pipes. And I yeah, so I said, well, I hear the, I hear the gas lines. I hear. He goes, no, no, but what else do you hear? And I said, nothing. And all of a sudden he pointed over and there was a lady's high heel shoe. And two foot away was a lady's pocketbook. And he said, where are they? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, where are the people attached to these items? And I didn't have an answer. And he said, brother, they're all pulverized. Look what it did to the building. You think we're going to find anybody? And, you know, Marcus, he was, he was right. I mean, there was only 200, I believe, and 90 human beings fully intact that were actually retrieved from that disaster, that, that place of evil. And um, half of those souls of the 2,977 2, souls have not even been identified by their DNA because there just wasn't enough of it to identify they just did identify two more souls two weeks two weeks ago, two days before 9-11, because thankfully science is improving and DNA uh, technology is improving. So 20 years after this horrific attack on us, these two families just, just were able to get closure. So about four or five in the morning, uh, my, my platoon commander at the time, Lieutenant Brian Gorman, he, we were just we were just done. And at a point in time, you're just physically shot. You're, you're useless actually to the mission. We couldn't breathe. We couldn't see, we couldn't stand half the time. We were just so messed up. And he said, guys, we're going to regroup. We need to go back. We need to get some medical help. We need supplies. We'll, we'll come back in a few hours, but we need to go. So we did. And we took a bus back through that tunnel. And I didn't even know at that time that Stephen had run through it 18 hours earlier. Um, and uh, we got our medical aid. And as we were walking up the hill from where the bus dropped us off to the firehouse, one of the older guys, Danny, says, we're all dead. And I said, no, Dan, we made it, man. I says, I says the brothers are gone. I said, but we need, to, we need to find them and bring them home to bury them, but we made it. He says, no, we don't get it, man. He says, do you feel like you just swallowed a box of razor blades? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I can't breathe. I said, he goes, we've been poisoned. We're all going to die. Well, out of that crew of 20 that morning, 10 of us have cancer. Uh, one of my buddies, Mike, has, has had three bouts of bladder cancer and two rare leukemias. Uh, another another Mike, we have a lot of Mikes in the fire department at uh, Mike. My other Mike, he, uh, he's had two cancers. He had thyroid and then he had a huge tumor wrapped around his aorta, cancerous tumor. And we're all coming down with wacky stuff. Um, 2011, I'll fast forward a little bit. I, I, I Well, yeah, I want to go back to these other guys because it isn't about me. So we went back and uh, we just did what we could. And, and, and after about four or five days, the, the fire ground and the police commander just said, guys, look, um, this is now recovery. Uh, there's there's no more viable souls being taken out of here. They're all gone. And uh, it was strange because on the second or third day, this gentleman wanted a federal uh, dog spy. I don't know if he was, I think he was a cadaver dog. And he got a hit and this man told us, he said, we need you to dig this little grid. And we dug a box that was about three foot wide by five foot deep, uh, three by five by about three, four foot deep. But it took about five, six hours because it was all covered in jagged 
rebar and sheet decking and steel and then there was dust and concrete and so it wasn't like you just dug a hole and, and quickly got to the bottom so after this five hours of just digging like maniacs cutting with saws and torches and pulling stuff by hand the dog got a hit again and he says you got it and then we looked down and it was just this little thing of human remains that you could not even identify as human and i said sir are you fucking with us and he said excuse me i said sir what are you talking about that is not a human being he took my shoulder he said sir i need to explain something to you i'm in a different type of business he said you all are used to finding full bodies intact, crushed in a car or burned up in a fire or whatever it is, you know, we pull them out of the river or the bay. He goes, you're not going to find bodies here. Please take this and put it in a hazmat bag and tag it where we are, because trust me, someone is going to identify their loved one from this. And at first I, I didn't really see the significance of that. But then when I saw the suffering of the families that were so desperately just looking to find something of their loved one, I felt like I had completed my mission that day. And strange enough, a few months later, this beautiful young man named Fitzroy Haynes Jr. Fitzy, his dad was a Jamaican immigrant who joined the United States Marine Corps. And Fitzy followed his daddy. And the morning of 9-11, it was Fitzy's first shift on the department out of training school. And he was assigned to South Street Seaport Firehouse, Tower out of 15, Engine 4. And an older gentleman named Tom Kelly. The, the call came in at about 10 to 9. Your shift officially starts at 9, but the courtesy is you always give a guy a relief and you say, hey, hey, Marcus, you go home, man. I, I got this. And Tom took, the, took Fitzy and he physically put him in an office and said, you do not move. You do not go anywhere. You man the radio and you man the phone. You're not going to this. Well, Tom Kelly is on audio with Lieutenant Joseph Levy from Tower Ladder 15. And it was just like another day at the races. They were telling command what they had. They're on the 78th floor. There's multiple victims. There's multiple dead victims. We need five truck companies for search to break down doors into areas where people are trapped. And we need five engine companies to operate hose lines. We think we can get a handle on this. We just need the manpower. And Chief Palmer from Battalion 7, I believe it was, he, he, he gave him the order. Okay, 10-4, I, I, I hear your order. I'm going to convey it because we, we had bad radios at the time because um, that wasn't a priority for the city. You know, firemen's radios didn't really matter so much, so they hardly worked. And uh, he got the order off that they needed the help. And five minutes later, there was radio silence because the building collapsed and they were in it. And Fitzroy sat and listened to that radio and he realized, oh my God, this man just threw me off the truck and he's dead and I'm sitting here, what do I do? Well, three, four months later, Fitzy was on a search crew and he found a little sneaker. And he thought someone was messing with us because there was no children reported in the tower that morning. But there was a three-year-old child on the plane with her mom. And she's actually related to a friend of mine. They were from Ireland. And my buddy grew up just near my mom. And he was waiting for them to come back from California to stay at their house. And the strange irony with that is Fitzy saw the shoe and he said to the lieutenant, hey, boss, I think there's something in the shoe. But why would there be a child's shoe? They must be messing with us. And the boss said, Fitz, hold on. Dog came over, human remains. They bagged it. It turned out it was that little child's shoe. And Fitzy, he died of a heart attack in 2011 because of 
the poisons we breathed in. And his young heart gave out at 40 years old. So there's just so many connections and interconnections of just these, these really beautiful, great guys that, um, that just gave everything. And then the cancers, they started really picking up in 04, 05. 2006, the first official death was finally recognized, Detective James Adroga. He was dying of advanced lung disease. There was no hope. And James spent basically six straight months at the landfill, at the old garbage dump, where they sent the, the remains of the debris, which basically intermixed with that was human beings. And James was there to try to painfully find all the human remains and identify them. Well, from his tour of duty there, he, he basically got this very rare and advanced lung disease and it was killing him. So his doctor told him to grind up his pain pills and snort them or drink them or eat them for immediate pain relief. So he did just that and followed that order. He died a week later and the New York City medical examiner under the orders of the mayor at the time said, we found talcum, which is the pill liners, and when you grind those up, they get stuck in the lung lining. So he said, this man did not die a hero. He died of an opiate overdose, no benefits for his family. So Jimmy's father, Joseph Shudroga, who was a retired police chief, went wild when he heard this mayor disgustingly say his son was not a hero. And he married up with a gentleman named John Field from the Feel Good Foundation. And John is an old soldier. And he was a construction and demolition expert who was, help, who was brought in to help dismantle what was left of the debris. And a week into the operation, he had 8,000 pounds of steel crush his foot and rip half of it off. And ended up for six months in a hospital with sepsis. And when he got out, nobody wanted to pay the bill because that's what started happening. The games began. So all the politicians that lined up on the West Side Highway for a mile south and a mile north, and with all the folks, and 912 was actually a beautiful day in America because we were unified and people flew the flag. And they didn't look at faces and facades, they looked in at souls, right? They weren't doing all this bullshit that we're hung up on now, judging each other and staring at. They looked into each other's souls and said, I'm American, you're American, and we need to support each other. Well, these politicians, they were so fast to get that selfie and then never forget hashtag. And they wanted to be seen with a rescuer because it looked good at the time. And they do the same thing to the military. Well, all of a sudden, two, three, four years later, when guys start dropping like flies, they're nowhere to be found. So John Field ends up with $600,000 in medical bills. And he marries up with Chief Sedroga, who wanted to salvage the name of his hero son. And they went on a mission to Washington. And they formed John Field's army and these two other beautiful souls, firefighter Ray Pfeiffer and city police detective Luis Alvarez. Well, they were both terminally ill with cancer in wheelchairs on oxygen, but they would go down there repeatedly to shame these politicians who would hide. I was there with them a few times who would run and hide in closets and cloakrooms like cowards because they didn't sign on to the legislation we were trying to get passed to just pay our medical bills. That's all we were asking. And John Field would chase them down. And it was actually comical to see these alleged supposed leaders cowering in a closet, hiding from this man on a mission. And you know, it's funny, my, my Irish grandma, Nora, God rest her, she used to always say, ah, those politicians, they're all like dirty diapers, they're full of shit and they stink. You know, Marcus, I learned it firsthand. Grandma Nora was so right. They were such 
phony cowards. We had one congressman who was a former police officer out west, California, who prided himself on saying he was a cop from a busy, busy ghetto area. And he was there to help save the people. This guy wouldn't even sign on to the legislation because he said it didn't confront his district. But we reminded him that 10 of his officers from L.A. County were also dying of 9-11 related illnesses because they came by plane, by bus, by RV and van to help us. So one of the cops who was dying got up out of his wheelchair and said, sir, cut the politics and the bullshit and do the right thing and sign on to this thing. Now we're dead man walking and we don't want to strap our families with millions of dollars in bills. So by the grace of God, John Field. And the actor John Stewart got on later on in time, and he really shamed them in a congressional hearing. We now have coverage. Our bills are paid. It makes me so blessed and thankful because I'm one of those guys. In 2011, I came down with an incurable leukemia. It's technically incurable in the books. And the fire department picked up something was wrong. I was telling them for two years, I'm not, I'm not right. And in 2010, they gave me a medical, but I was temporarily sent, as they call it, to bed lieutenant camp because I had a moment with an upper level supervisor who, in the end, apologized and said he was wrong. His ego got in the way, but he's the boss. So I got sent to bed lieutenant camp, which means you go all over the city for six months. And I know, you know, the fellas up in Harlem, 43 and 53, where Mike Riley was was well loved. Yes, sir. And uh I passed through everywhere because I was in trouble, but it was okay because I got to see guys I hadn't seen in years. It was great. It was like a reunion tour, except for one thing. I had a medical during that time and being the uh, not so efficient bureaucracy that they sometimes can be, FDMI Medical sent my results, but they never got to me and I had cancer. So a year later, they picked up on it again and now it was worse. So they pulled me off the truck and said, you can bleed to death immediately. You have no platelets. I said, okay, then I want treatment. Take me in today. It was a Friday. But the dirty rotten secret is a lot of the doctors, they like to go out to the Hamptons to the beach on the Fridays in the summer, get ahead of the traffic. Yeah, don't worry about it. Come in Monday. So I came in Monday and my spleen was about the size of a Rollins football. And I could, I could barely just, I was a mess. And I look at this one doctor who had the duty and he says, yeah, what are you doing here? Just like that, because a lot of times in the summer, guys, you know, they want a couple extra days to be with their family. He goes, yeah, listen, I'm not feeling it today or whatever. I got diarrhea or I got whatever. So I said, well, sir, I said, I'm here because you sent me here. I said, this is my, my blood work. They pulled me from the truck. Can you give me an exam? And he said, whoa, 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 Lieutenant, you're mistaking me for your doctor. Who's your doctor? And I said, Dr. So-and-so, who happened to also be in the FDMY, but she's my doctor on the outside. He goes, you go see her when you get a chance, but tomorrow you ride a desk because you're on light duty. Because now what they do is to threaten you to go back so they don't have to replace you on overtime. They'll throw you on a desk to speed up your healing, right? I said, sir, I lifted up my shirt and it looked like ET wanted to pop out. I said, could you please tell me what's wrong? Look at my spleen. I have no platelets. And he tilts his two fingers back, his thumb and his pinky as if I was drinking. And he goes, whoa, Lieutenant, busy summer. And I went, excuse me, sir. I said, are you judging me? Is that a stereotypical comment? Because I'm Irish and Danish and you're assuming I like to drink. 
I said, I just spoke to a, a medical personnel in my family and they said, this is indicative of a blood cancer. And he went, oh, we got another WebMD. I went off on this guy and I said, you know what, you piece of shit, you shouldn't even be a doctor. The XO came running in, another doctor asking me what was wrong. And I said to the doctor, ma'am, can you look at this? And she went, ooh, no platelets, come on inside. And she kind of gave him the wink, like, you're an asshole, I'll take this. So she said, go get a sonogram, go call your doctor, you need treatment. I said, thank you, ma'am, I appreciate you caring. Well, I did, I went to that doctor and she said to me right away, well, how's the drinking? I said, well, ma'am, what does that mean? Because, you know, Marcus, unfortunately, a lot of our guys after the horrors of 9-11 and then watching their friends years later just die one a week. Yeah, we did some drinking, right? And some of us went for some counseling to say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I lost all the guys I love and I'm still here. Can you tell me why? So if you went for counseling, they automatically said you have PTSD. So with that, she says, just go for a sonogram, go for this test, that test, that test. So for three weeks, I'm trying to track her down. She finally says, okay, just come in uh, next week and we'll figure this out. So now it's almost a month later and I show up and uh, I was told she left for the day at 12 o'clock. And I said, well, how's that possible? I have an appointment at one. So I call her XL, her driver, and they're in a restaurant. And I hear the glasses clanking and I says, uh, Tom. I got a big problem. I think I'm dying and the doc didn't show up. Can you ask her to come back? And he went, oh, shit, today's your appointment? Yeah, today. Well, three hours later, waiting for her, I pass out. I go down. And the charge physician who had a heart and some empathy, he coded me and he called 911. And he said to him, send paramedics, advanced life support, not the regular EMS, you know, not the routine, just transport to the hospital. This guy, his spleen's going to rupture. He's going out. His blood pressure is 240 over 140. So when struts this doctor, pissed off that she had to come back and do her job. And she gets into a fight with me and the paramedic over what's wrong with me. So he explained to her, well, his spleen's about to rupture. She said, oh, that's nothing but drinking. And he said, well, can you explain the blood pressure of 240 over 140? He said his body is going into some sort of shock, something's wrong. She said, oh, that's probably anxiety. He's got PTSD. That, that's what they all do. Well, he overrode her. This wonderful six foot seven tall African-American who I work calls with on the street. And when he first saw me, when he responded, he said, why? He was teasing me. I was red as a, a friggin' tomato. And he says, oh, man, 114. He goes, you're not one of them surfer dudes out of Rockaway Beach. I'm like, Doc, I'm too fat to fly the surfboard, bro. This is what's wrong. This is my paperwork. So that's why he overruled the doctor. He told me on the way to the hospital in the ambulance, I'm sorry, my brother, but you have cancer. I can't believe this doctor didn't pick up on this, but we're going to do what we can. And as you know, in the, med, in, the, in, in the military, we call the medics Doc. And I says, Doc, thanks for pushing me out of there. Thanks for giving me a chance at least. So I got into the hospital. They did their thing wanting to know why I wasn't there a month earlier. I said, because I trusted my doctors, which I shouldn't. When the team finally drilled into my head, took out the bull around, this and that, they said, look, you got here in time. You had about 48 hours to live. But we got the swelling subsided, but we need to do a rapid intervention. We're trying to find the drugs because it's so rare. You have the rarest leukemia that's known to medicine. There's 500 cases in all of North America a year. 
but you're the seventh 9-11 rescuer in six months to, to get it. And two guys have already died during the treatment. This isn't good. I said, okay, what's my chances? They said, well, leukemia is like a car. It's not, a, it's not like an organ cancer stage one through four. It's like a car and it drives to the edge of the cliff and it goes off. I said, where's my car? They said the front two wheels are dangling and the car starting to tilt. I said, okay, then let's do this. So they had to hit me with two and a half years worth of chemo in these massive bags in seven days and burn out my bone marrow in the hopes that my seedling marrow could regenerate because I wasn't a candidate for, for a uh, transplant or any of that stuff. Thank God since the 10 years since they've, they've improved the medical technology. But the second, my, my nurse, Mike Nunez, who was my, my savior, and this other lady from Trinidad, Alta Gracia, they were my angels on earth. And Mike said to me, he said, look, I have to put on a hazmat suit. This stuff is so caustic that if I get it on your skin or my skin or anything, it will burn through it. I said, then how the hell are you going to put this in my body? He said, well, it does its job that way. He says, it'll, it'll trust me, it'll work. You'll feel like you're burning to death, but you're not. I mean, I've never heard anybody to just give the descriptive of burning, burning to death on the inside, but don't worry, you'll be okay. Yeah, and what happened was when he started the IV, it, it, it spilled onto the tube and the tube started to smoke. And I said, hold, I said, you're not putting that in me. He said, hold on, let me start it over and let me start a new one. He said, listen to me, those three beautiful kids that were just here praying with you and your wife, he says, if you want to see him again, take this. Because if you don't, you got about two days. I said, okay, let's go. And within a second, Marcus, it started. And it was like when you drink a whiskey and you feel that burn. And it started up my wrist, up my shoulder, across my shoulders, up my head, down my body. And within 30 seconds, I was writhing in pain. I saw my beautiful Irish mother-in-law that night. She had just passed six months before. Went to church every day. And she was smiling. And she said, and I said, Nan, I want to go home. Please, please tell God I'm done. I can't do it. I'm weak. I don't have it in me. And she said, no, my boyfriend. She called me her boyfriend. And uh, she said, he's not ready. Just go back with those that beautiful family, she says, but when he's ready, he'll call. And she faded away. And I fought for my life, Marcus. I, I, I figured after that, I want to live now. If Dan says it's good with God, it's good with God. Because if she's not in heaven, no one is. And I fought my battle and I got out. And a few months later, they told me, you're, you're retired, you're out. You can't stay with cancer. I said, well, you let my dad, you let him work in office. But after 20 years now, you're, you're a financial liability. And with the amount of guys getting sick, you you also become, you know, uh, like basically they don't want it. You don't they don't want you on their nickel anymore. When you're retired, you're not their problem. So I'm sure similar to you, you all in the military, they train you in everything except for how to retire. So I've been searching. I've been wandering for 10 years. God, please tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I got an opportunity from some kind folks in Iron Light Labs. They heard a podcast. Uh, I had reached out to a gentleman who gives millions and millions of dollars to cancer research. And I thanked him. It was gentleman, David Koch, who's since passed away. And I said, sir, I want nothing. I just want to say thank you. You helped save my life. Your, re your donations to research, my oncologist studied under those grants and he saved my life. Thank you. So someone did a podcast on it about being grateful, being thankful, the gift of a second chance. So these folks from Iron Light Labs said, hey, we want to do a tribute to the folks at 9-11 who've given back 
some who have died, some who haven't. And we just want to tell the stories because we feel that it's being eradicated from American history. And, you know, Marcus said enough, 26 states in the United States have no curriculum to teach 9-11. And many, many districts around the nation, it's actually deemed offensive. It cannot be taught. Now, I don't know how the hell 9-11 is offensive to anyone in America. It's offensive to my friends who died and their families. And if it's offensive to gentlemen like you and your brave warrior brothers who gave everything for this country. But how the hell is it offensive? Just, just beyond record beyond belief for me. So I know I sound fired up and it's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to put out. I'm trying to put out some, some love and some kindness. I want to bring back the unity of 912 and say, folks, America is not perfect. It has its bumps, its bruises, its blemishes, but trust me, I've lived elsewhere. There is no better place. And in honesty, sometimes our history, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe there's some bad elements of it, but it's our history. And it needs to be taught. So what we're trying to do is in a kind, gentle way, get these stories out there. We're trying to support Tunnel to Towers and get some awareness for them on their mission and, and just spread some good messages and good education. And the podcast is called 2420podcast.com. And so far, we've had some really good uh, feedback. Folks say it's, it's, it's making sense. And uh, it's one of the highest honors in my life to speak about my brave friends because they were just truly the best, the best that this country has to offer. We're, I'm that's, sorry, we're, that's, we're, we're, di- we're, di- we're digesting all that. That was. I'm such, sorry, no, I, I, I was rapid fire. And you know, Marcus, it's funny because when you're in remission, it's an elusive beast. You don't know how much time you actually have. So I have this constant fear that I'm not going to have enough time. So I talk fast and I do things fast and I, you know, and I have to stop myself and go, wait a minute. You're, you're here. No, we slow down. No, we need. And also I realize we you know, need the guys show's like only you so long. Hey, no, no, no. We, we need, we need heroes like you to, to, to keep, to keep that, our history alive and share the stories well, of those that fought so bravely inside our borders. You know, we, we talk about our veterans and our first responders. Uh, most people can't appreciate you know, you guys deploy out your front door every day. I say that as much as I can. So, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're our warriors out there just right outside. Well, the- well, they're my, they're my heroes. I'm not a hero. My friends were heroes. I'm just a guy who did, did his job and I've been blessed with a pension and I've been blessed with remission and a family, but you know, Marcus, my heroes, the guys protecting me right now in, in, in central Tennessee, they make 17 bucks an hour. My sheriffs in my county. And, and they ride by themselves in a car. And I'm sure it's very similar where you are in Texas. Guys are on solo patrol. And then they pull up on four, five, six bad dudes. Right? And you know more than anyone in this world what it's like to be outnumbered. And God bless you for your, your sacrifice and your bravery. And these poor guys are out there. And they didn't pay you guys nothing right this this beautiful marine who just passed away two weeks ago saying she had her dream job holding an afghani baby she was an e1 what is she making 22 grand but she's working 90 hours a week so she's good for six bucks an hour and she couldn't wait to go down to the recruiter and sign up right and it's the same thing with all these heroes that are turning out on a daily basis strapping on bulletproof vests and, and fire helmets and military helmets and flat jackets and and they're making nothing and they're still breaking down the doors to the recruiters to take those jobs 
And and the kicker is they're just not getting the respect that they used to. And it's so sad. I just saw a video last night of these two officers in Florida and a guy runs up and smashes him in the head with a brick and tries to tear the other officer's eye out. And he bites through his arm, literally through into the flesh. And he's charged with assault. So this one cop's probably going to lose his eye in his career. And this other guy's going to have brain damage. And this gentleman's going to get out of jail in, oh, two weeks. There's something wrong. And, and it, it has to change. If it doesn't, we're on a collision course with, with the empire just ending. Yeah. I mean, we have to stop rewarding the bad guys. And again, I'm not going to pull politics because it, it sets people off. But after a while, it's like if we reward our children for bad behavior, what are they going to learn? Oh, I, I guess it's good to be bad. But if we if we teach our children right, like our parents taught us, and teach them that there's ramifications and there's outfall. And if you don't take responsibility and accountability, you will pay the price with a shitty life. And, you know, it's funny, like what really upsets me is what is now deemed a man in America. Right. So you got guys running around. No one wants to be a father anymore. Just be a baby daddy. Just have a baby and just you know, take off and uh, maybe maybe catch up with him when he's 22 and successful. And, and how about being a father and a husband? And a decent contributor to society instead of being acting like a child. And yet those are the people we're glorifying in society. And it, it's troubling for an old guy like me, you know, and, and I, I'm really, really hoping that our project can say maybe it'll strike a nerve in a few people. It's like when my son and I saw you in 2017 on a Patriots tour, this beautiful young man, 21, well-raised. But when he heard you speak, it struck a spark and it motivated him so hard to study harder and be, you know, he wants to be a pilot and because when he heard your determination and, and that's, that's what we're not hearing anymore. We're not hearing the stories of the good guys. We're worshiping the knuckleheads. And, and that's, that's just baffling to me. I, I don't understand that. And, and that has to start changing as well. It does. It does. Hey, before we wrap up, Nils, and, and thank you for digging into those into those pieces of your life. What you've got so many. What give me give our listeners a one Neil's never quit advice. Give me a piece of advice. One that was my our, our, our listeners can take away. You know, Marcus, some people get a little scared away when you preach faith and you preach old school values and I, I draw it back to, I watched my father battle cancer and he never complained and he did it stoically. And I watched my beautiful Irish mother do her best to raise us on a fireman's salary. I, I say to my kids, look up from your phone, look at people's eyes and look up to your creator above and be grateful and be thankful. And just what I understood is the, at the very, very worst when I would turn it over to God and say, please, God, walk me through this, regardless if I end up with you in heaven or staying here on earth, please walk me through this. And I think what happens is our stubborn pride of we always think we know better as human beings gets in the way. We don't. We're not in control. You know, and that's what I think we just need to do is come back to faith, come back to family. But most of all, be grateful for every day. You know, I thank God for every day I had before cancer. I thought my life was so good. But now I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning. 
I'm alive for another day, another sunrise, another sunset. So my whole thing is be grateful, be faithful, just be a good person and it will all work out for you. Trust me. I, I've seen it happen for a lot of people. And that's if, if, if I had my way and my say in the world, that's what I'd be preaching. That's great. But bro. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. And I'm, that, I'm sorry I hogged the conversation. I just, no, that's, I that's why we, ha- no, that's why we have you there. on here, buddy. Uh, we want to hear about you and, and, and what, and what you've seen and done and, and, and b- bless you for doing what you're doing now with your podcast and celebrating those lives. And thank you again for coming and spending a, spending time with us today. Well, sir, bless you. Thank you for what you've done for our great country. And thank all of your fellow warriors, because you know what? We would not have our freedom. You know, guys like you, they're willing to give up every one of their tomorrows. So we all have our today. That's so beautiful. All it takes is people just saying, hey, man, thank you. Stop a cop, stop a medic, stop a soldier, a Marine, Navy, you know, a, a Navy SEAL or, you know, a, a sailor or, or an airman and just say, hey, thank you. Yeah. And they'll know. They'll know exactly what you mean. Yep. Marcus, Andrew, thank you, sirs. And I'd like to send you guys T-shirts. I'll get your information and uh, be my honor for you to have them. And uh, thanks for what you're doing. And God bless you. And God bless America. God bless you, brother. Take care. Thank you. All right, sirs. Thanks. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. If today's story inspired you, please share it with a friend. 20for20podcast.com is where you can listen to Neil's podcast. It is incredibly produced. The stories that he's sharing are just incredible. It's fascinating. And the fact that he's keeping the memories alive and not letting them fade away and letting people just feel that same feeling that they felt September 12th. That is what it's all about. So make sure you guys support his podcast. If you like our show, make sure you follow us. Make sure to share the episodes with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. All those things that podcasters ask you to do. If you'd like, follow us on social media, teamneverquit.com slash social. Marcus Morgan and myself, we're all out there doing our thing. Make sure you subscribe anywhere you get your shows. Get out your podcast gear. Show people that you will never quit. We will see you guys next week.